Whether you're in the risk management or business continuity and resilience world, it has never been more important for you to understand cyber risks, threats, and vulnerabilities. The question is, who do you talk to about it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of the Resilient Journey podcast, sponsored by Clear Risk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today I'm joined by the COO of Orpheus Cyber, Carla Reffold. Listen as Carla provides practical advice about understanding risks related to cyber and supply chains. She talks about managing your vulnerabilities effectively and explains the difference between vulnerabilities and threats. As a bonus, Carla gives us some great advice on how we can all encourage our daughters and granddaughters to get involved in the cybersecurity industry. We'll get into a great conversation with Carla Reffold right after this from my friends at ClearRisk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Carlo, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you here. Before we get into the meat of our conversation, you have a really accomplished and interesting background. So take a minute to tell us about yourself. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I guess my background is a little different to most people in cybersecurity. So I started out doing recruitment and a couple of years, maybe not actually a couple of years, a couple of years into my recruitment career, probably about six to 12 months into founding my own recruitment business, uh, someone said to someone said to us, you know, you should really get into this cybersecurity thing. We went, okay, um, looked into it and realized it was, uh, you know, incredibly important with huge growth potential. And very quickly, the whole business just focused on cybersecurity, and we kind of let the other things around risk uh, go. Really, so I ran that business. Uh, for about seven years before I sold it. I stayed with the people that bought it and took on a slightly bigger role, really focused on growing our presence in the US. And then I moved to the US about two years ago, uh, just right before COVID, and then ended up joining the cyber vendor Orpheus Cyber. So we do risk ratings, which are backed by threat intelligence. And then there are a few things that, that come off, off that with the threat intel piece. Um, but it's been a very exciting couple of years, finally being in the cybersecurity industry and not just recruiting for it. So I'm going to use some of the services. You mentioned uh, Orpheus Cyber. So I'm going to use some of the services that your company does, I think, as the background for some strategically important questions. But before we get to some of the work that needs to be done, I want to talk about the players, the, the team that, that's doing the work. Now, in some organizations, they might be all together. They might be under IT. Maybe they have their own department, maybe under risk management. It, it kind of depends. Or they might be spread out throughout the organization. So talk to me about the importance of the collaboration, though, between the players involved in information security vulnerability management, privacy, resilience, business continuity, and risk management. How does that all fit together? 
I mean, it fits together in theory a lot better than it does in practice, right? We <laughs> see this um, really often. So I'm working with a client right now and they're the security team. And I keep saying to them, hey, you know, we can see you've got a load of vulnerabilities. And they go, yeah, we know we're not the team that patch the vulnerabilities. And we keep telling them and, you know, it's wherever it is on their priority list. So it's uh, it's a company where actually that process is not working as efficiently as it could because the people who own those different things are really spread out. And I think where I've seen this most noticeably is with business continuity, disaster recovery, and the cybersecurity team. So before that uh, amazing gentleman told me, go do cybersecurity, we did business continuity, disaster recovery, crisis management, um, areas that I still find fascinating. Mm -hmm. And those teams never really work together. The business continuity teams became much smaller as plans became more established and cybersecurity, because it came out of IT um, in general, didn't didn't ever really kind of go line up with them. Um, and I've seen people in the business continuity world talk about how cyber is really a resilience issue. And I think we're finally coming to that as an industry. We're finally starting to say that ourselves as cybersecurity people, particularly when it comes to instant response, because instant response and disaster recovery have a lot in common. The most common thing being, you know, that need for a... Uh, for testing your plans and that need for having a communication plan. So they really don't work together, I think, as well as they should. But um, they're all really, really linked. You know, you can't do privacy without having some sort of security, but also recognising security is not privacy. So I think if we can get to a place where those teams work more cohesively, I think we're going to end up in a better place overall. Completely agree. And as the host of a podcast called The Resilient Journey, to hear an expert say that cyber is a resilience issue is music to my ears. I mean, I, I love hearing it. And I would like to agree with what you said, just in theory, all of those things fit very nicely together. But it really takes intentional collaboration, doesn't it? I mean, there's so many parts of the puzzle that come from each of those different areas. Yeah, it, it really does. And I think, you know, maybe there hasn't always been the recognition that they need to work together. And sometimes in big organizations, you get that that fear, right? You know, the people that want to ring fence their things, ring fence their budget. Um, and, you know, maybe would like to work with other people, but it just doesn't work for work for them. So, um, but yeah, it's it's essentially, it is resilience. And I think we're seeing that now, you know, the big the big attacks, you know, Colonial Pipeline being the, the big one that I think everyone thinks of, that is 100% a business resilience issue. And I think that helps spark that conversation. So I'm going to start ticking off some of the services that um, your organization provides because they start to paint a very complete picture of what we should be focusing on. So the first thing I'd like to start with and particularly with those disciplines that we just talked about in mind, right? Resilience, risk management, uh, information security, cyber, and, and so forth. Let's go through some of the steps that you would be looking to do to improve an organization's supply chain risk, um, particularly when it comes to cyber. What are you typically trying to accomplish there? 
Yeah, and, and really, I'll just talk about the cyber piece because supply chain risk is, is huge, you know, especially over the last couple of years. I think we've seen that that is a, a physical and a, a logistical issue. But the cyber piece, what we're really trying to accomplish is help organizations assess the risk of the companies that are in their supply chain, particularly their critical suppliers. If you look at some of the biggest breaches, um, you know, Target's bringing to mind. Target, one of the, the biggest breaches, uh, security breaches ever, it was caused by their HVAC supplier being breached. Now, how like how your HVAC supplier is connected in a way that you can get to payment details for your customers um, now seems really obvious. But they won't be they won't be alone in that. Um, and there are it's often the kind of the smaller suppliers further down in that supply chain that can cause the problem because maybe they don't focus on security. We talk about how small businesses don't think that they have anything worth stealing or don't have the capability or the money to go spend on it so they're the they're the easy target and you get into them they're trusted they they come in with the, the attackers come in with a trusted place on your network and we're seeing this in the in the breaches that are happening again you know Kaseya being a huge one last year which was really the first fourth party breach and organizations haven't really even got their third party security locked down plenty of companies we speak to don't really know who their critical suppliers are they know that they're working with an average of about 400 suppliers but going up into the tens of thousands and so we try and help them find a way for to quickly without you know the need for huge resource and huge spend to say okay these are the ones i need to worry about and these are the ones that i need to go talk to and try and get them to improve their security so that ultimately i will be more secure you do that typically through like security questionnaires or you i mean you're not proposing or maybe you are you know full on audits of those key suppliers what what is your recommendation there so we do the full on opposite of that, like moving away from questionnaires because questionnaires, time consuming, people intensive, point in time, you're hoping that they've told you the truth. And if you really want to care and, and for certain supplies, absolutely, you're going to need to go in and you are going to need to audit or, or find out more. Absolutely. Okay. We do a, a risk score. Um, it's a, a passive look at the outside of the organization. Now, for your critical suppliers, you might need a bit more than that. But actually, for if you're managing a few hundred this score just gives you a great starting point. And we can do that within minutes. And then you don't need a whole personal team to go and, you know, follow up on those questionnaires and send them and read them and all of that stuff. So it is not only more effective and continuous, but it is it is cheaper and less resource intensive. So I work with a team that's struggling to stay ahead of new vulnerabilities. So before I ask this next question, let's walk through the vulnerability management process together. And I'll kind of give you a, a little insight in, into this one company that I'm familiar with, what they're doing. So they're working with a tool, whatever it is. And it says, based on the services that you're running, the platforms that you're on and so forth, here's a known vulnerability. And I guess that vulnerability has a, a, a priority score or a vulnerability score associated with it. So I'm laying this down in very broad, rough looking, you know, big blocks here. So you can fill in some details. But then what they do is they do uh, an, uh, an assessment internally to say, okay, this is how this vulnerability might affect us. And then they assign it out for remediation. Before I get to my question, is that a fair backdrop? I mean, what details would you add there? 
Yeah, I think I think that's a, a fair backdrop of what most people are doing. Most people are they're assessing, they're looking for what vulnerabilities they have, they're prioritizing them some sort of way, and, and that's you know probably an area for us to come back and focus on. Um, and then they're remediating, whether that's patching or mitigating, or actually saying this is something that is really low risk and we're not going to worry about. You know, we're accepting this risk. That's that's you know that's a potential thing for them to do um and then they're going back through that that process again sort of reassessing uh you know what's there and what's important to them and and what's new you know we know that thousands are being discovered every year so and that's you know that's the that's the kind of main thing that they're looking at but i know one of the things that you're talking about is taking a risk-based approach to vulnerability so explain that and what are the advantages of looking at it through that lens so if you have, I mean, if, if you have even dozens of those on, on your network, not even hundreds, then we all know that patching is, is really difficult. It's difficult to stay on top of. It might be, it might be expensive for, for you, you know, for that downtime if that's required. So most organizations are following some sort of prioritization. The main prioritization is the CVSS score from the from the MVD. And that's um, that's a great way to start. The issue that we have with that score is it's really based on impact. It's largely based on what happens if, if this uh, vulnerability is exploited, how severe could this the impact of that be? And it's not dynamic and it doesn't really, it doesn't change over time. It doesn't really take into account, do threat actors care about this? How easy is this to exploit? Because actually if it's really hard to exploit and most threat actors don't want to go with it, then then that should change where that that risk is. So we have our own scoring system, which takes those things into account. How often are we seeing this being exploited? How often are we seeing threat actors talk about this? Um, How easy is it to to execute? And also a prediction model. So some, um, some vulnerabilities that are discovered are never exploited. A huge percentage of them will never be exploited. Um, So we have a prediction model for how likely it is that one of those will be exploited in the future. So you can start to prioritize in a really different way for what is gonna have um, the impact on your business and the likelihood that those things will be exploited. So rather than relying on an impact score, we've got a slightly more dynamic way of doing that. And um, the people that are using it are really, really liking it is giving them a totally different way, which is more aligned to their business to prioritize those vulnerabilities. So the CVE score, which is sort of an industry standard risk or vulnerability level uh, indicator um, is sort of the starting point for you and what you're doing. And then you're taking it further and refining it and making it a more uh, true priority type score then? Is, Is that a fair way to assess it? Yeah, exactly that. It's a, a more a more detailed way of prioritizing that is more effective. The, we talk about vulnerabilities. Now, the piece we haven't talked about really yet is this threat intelligence side of it. So let's start with the basics again. What is a threat assessment and how is a threat different than a vulnerability? So a vulnerability is is a gap that you have, right? It's, you know, it's an actual, whether that's a, a vulnerability in terms of a CVE or whether it is, you know, you've got an exposed database or you've got poor email security. It's, it's, a, it's a way a threat actor gets into you. And then the threat is really, you know, how, who, who is it that might want to attack you and how might they do that? That's how we look mm-hmm. at it. 
Um, and then, you know, the, the piece that we don't do is that that kind of impact, you know, what happens if you uh, if this does happen and that ultimately informs your risk. So it's, you know, for us, it is what is your gap and then, you know, who is looking to exploit that gap? And for us, it's are they relevant to you? Because, you know, plenty of threats exist out there, but they they may not be that relevant to you. I was speaking with um, a cyber lead the other day who said to me, he doesn't believe his organization should do penetration tests. And when I asked him why, he said, well, because we're so far behind in our vulnerability work that it would be pointless. A penetration test would only reveal what we already know. We already know we have these vulnerabilities and we already know we have these gaps. What would your advice be to someone who said that to you? I mean, I guess I don't disagree with them. If, if they know where their problems are, I guess the point is, are you are you working on those? Because if you are working on them and your plan is to go test that in the future, then that sounds great. But if you're not, um, I mean, why not? And, and then maybe a penetration test helps you get that buy-in. Maybe then that is the way that, you know, once your exec team see, okay, it's no longer just a list of numbers for vulnerabilities, but it means they can get to this. And this means we get, this fine or this impact from our customers, then you've got a different story to tell. I was um, doing some work for a, a client just last week, and one of their customers asked them to identify their overall security rating. So my understanding of that is it's against the capability maturity model with a focus on uh, typical security components. I don't know whether it's the NIST security model or, or whatever it turns out to be, but do you get involved in that? And, and how would you respond typically if, if you were working with an organization that wanted a score like that? So that, that's what we do. We do a score. It is an outside-in perspective, and then we can provide comparisons either to direct competitors or to your industry as a whole. So it really depends, I guess, on what they want. You know, if they want to, that's a good, it's a really simple thing to go take to your exec team. Hey, we're, you know, we've gone down from being 800 to 500, and that means we've really, really improved. Um, but if they really want, you know, that capability assessment against a, a different model, then I guess that's a, a slightly different thing. So I guess it really just depends what they're, exactly what they're looking for and what their need is. How would you advise a customer who has been asked by one of their customers, a big customer, uh, to provide an overall security rating, but they have these known gaps. They know they have issues. How do they respond to a customer like that in a way that's truthful? Because I never advise a customer to lie, but in a way that's truthful, but then that also doesn't raise other flags or objections to their customers. Well, this is a this is a great question because it kind of speaks to that issue of doing questionnaires. You know how how truthful is it, and or how much is there? Um, you know, trying to avoid some of the tough conversations. So, um, I think I would say, really, certain things you're not going to be able to to brush over. But put a remediation plan in place. Show them what your timescales are and what you're doing. Because what I haven't seen is customers saying an arbitrary no. Now, maybe early on in the procurement process, they would. But really, if, if someone wants to work with you, you know, the business are probably driving that and it's procurement that are trying to limit that risk. So I think if you can show how you're going to limit that risk and over what time frame, that's going to make it much, much easier for that customer to say yes to working with you. 
It's a really um, interesting perspective, though, because it could be a situation where a customer is doing one or maybe two of two things. And the, the first thing is they could be exposing security vulnerabilities that you're aware of. And I know I used the word vulnerability there, and I meant that more generically, uh, but they could be exposing some security gaps. But they also could be driving you to improve your process and improve your security, which really isn't a bad thing. I mean, if at the end of the day, your security is improved because of it, who can complain? Well, exactly. And if that one customer is asking you, you can guarantee the next one's going to be asking you too. So at some point, you are going to have to do this. And we are seeing it more and more that procurement teams are using things that, you know, are are simple and easy to do as part of that process to, um, you know, make sure security is included in in the procurement process. So it is becoming more and more common and it's becoming more and more common for smaller companies as well, not just those big companies. So it is, it is something you are probably going to get asked. The worst thing that you could do is just hide your head in the sand and ignore it. And I think the other worst thing you can do is feel like it's a big bother because, oh, this customer is just being overly aggressive or whatever. And the reason that that's a worst case scenario is you're ignoring the fact that cybersecurity is a real threat. And if you don't do something about it, a customer asking you questions is the least of your problems. Well, exactly that, because, you know, the the security risks at the moment are prolific and they're really not you know discriminating against type of company and size of company so if you're not doing something about it you're going to be worse than your competition means it's going to be more likely to happen to you and you know and then you're going to lose business because of it and I think if you're if you're thinking about how you can hide some of those issues you're getting into really tricky territory as well. You know, I guess it's going to come down to what's in your, what's in your, uh, your contracts. But you know, even even things like cyber insurance, cyber insurers are all looking at the tools like like that we have. Um, you know, to look and and check that what you're putting on your applications are accurate. So there's really no hiding from some of this stuff. I have customers in the U.S. and in Canada and in Europe. And I find it very interesting to see the different perspectives on privacy response, particularly between uh, the EU, where they're all focused on GDPR, and Canada, we have some pretty strict privacy regulations. And then it seems a a bit more lax in the US. What are you seeing in that area? And how much of an adjustment was that for you moving from the UK to the US? I think it was the biggest adjustment for me personally, no, not biggest overall, but, you know, personally, the adjustment was was the biggest one because it's very hard to unsubscribe from emails. And, you know, you get, I get far more unsolicited phone calls and emails and, you know, the ways in which people try and contact you out here is, you know, really five years ago compared to Europe. So it, it, I really noticed the impact on me personally. Um, and I do see it within businesses as well. You know, the... In Europe, I guess, you know, or at least in the UK, begrudgingly, we comply with the GDPR, right? You know, there's definitely some, uh, you know, does anyone want to comply with any regulations? (laughs) You know, they're not that fun. But there's a begrudging compliance and understanding that actually, do you know what, this is probably a good thing for all of us. Um, And in the US, you know, it's we comply with that because we have customers in Europe or we have to or, you know, but really it's we don't we don't need to so we don't there hasn't been that that shift of 
actually, this is the direction the world is going. It's actually probably morally the right thing to do. And so we're going to build that into our processes. So I guess it really reinforces the view that this is, if you want that change, it's got to come through regulation. It's not going to be self-governed. That's a really good point. Hey, before we run out of time, I want to get your advice on something. Um, And I know it's important to both of us. I'm encouraged to see more and more women in the cyber industry and having gender equality is really important. What would you say to people who might want to maybe share this career path, let's say with their daughters, maybe high school age? Um, What's the best training path and maybe the best education path that they could take to get into the industry? So I think particularly if if you're looking at kind of middle school, high school kids, maybe even younger, if if that's where you're thinking, and that's a great place to to start, is um, I would go get them some kind of basic coding knowledge. Now, you don't necessarily have to have that to be in cybersecurity, but it's probably a good way to getting an introduction. It's a good way to getting you thinking in a technical way. And I think those skills are going to serve you particularly if you're if you're that age, you know, in your future career, that having those skills are going to serve you no matter what you end up doing. Um, and then I, I think it is, you know, showing showing young girls that this is a career for them. Um, and unfortunately, I think some of that burden sits on on the women in the industry. You know, it's if we want to be those role models, you can't send a man into schools to say, you know, hey, girls, look, you can do it too. You need to send you need to send women in. So I think some of that sits there. It's showing them, you know, what is why is this career exciting and really making it clear that this is a place for them and a potential option for them. There are millions of training programs out there. So, you know, I think it doesn't almost doesn't matter which one you pick as long as it's something that drives your interest and in, in your passion. Um, and then I think we have to make this industry a safe and welcoming space for women to come into. And there are lots of, I could probably talk forever on, on what that looks like, but that is, you know, that is what's incumbent on all of us now. And that's something that, you know, men in the industry can very much drive as well, how, that, how we make this a welcoming place. I like to think of myself as an ally in that area. We, we talk with some colleagues in the Women in Resilience uh, group within the Business Continuity Institute, and uh, it's something that I take seriously. So let's shift then for a minute away from the younger girls into maybe women who are already in a career. Uh, maybe they're not sure about what their career path wants to be, uh, but they think about cyber as, yeah, you know what, that seems interesting to me. What kind of advice would you give, you know, women who might want to shift into the career? I mean, firstly, like do it. It's a, it's a great place to be. Um, it is actually right now, if you're a woman in this industry and many others, you know, women make up around 20%, whatever the, the most recent stat is in cybersecurity. And companies really want to hire more women. They, On the whole, I think people want diverse teams and they understand the importance of that. So actually now is a great time to be in because you're in demand. Um, and, you know, I definitely saw this when I used to do research on salaries that when I was comparing, you know, men and women getting similar job offers for the same company, women were getting paid more because they would have multiple job offers uh, from different companies and companies really wanted them to come join them. So I think it's a great time to, to come in. And there are so many different routes, right? You know, you don't have to wear a hoodie and go hack companies by night you can you can do stuff in normal clothes in the daytime love it all right carla your um 
very desirable from a company standpoint and also from the things that you bring to the table individually. And I'm sure people are going to want to connect with you. Uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, LinkedIn. There's really only you know one person with my name, I think, on LinkedIn. If there's two, the other ones are fake. So yeah, just find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> all right, great. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. This has been delightful. Uh, thanks for taking a half an hour or so and, and doing this with us. And uh, yeah, thanks for being a guest on The Resilient Journey. Thank you for having me. It was great to catch up with Carla Reffold, and I want to thank her again for being our guest on The Resilient Journey. I had a meeting last week with one of the developers over at ClearRisk, and he showed me a new dashboard that captures the essence of a business continuity plan on a single screen. I was excited about it, and I thought you might be too. To learn more about ClearRisk's new business continuity module, drop me a line. Next week, we continue our series on things that will keep you up at night by talking with Dr. Samantha Montano as we discuss climate change. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.